this is a very, a very special episode. Um, today, we're going to be discussing the pilot episode of HBO's Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, all the all the wider culture issues that uh, stem from from there. Uh, we have a, a very special guest, uh, Mark Andresen. Um, and yeah, we're, we're, we're super glad that you, you said yes to coming on. I'm excited. This is, uh, these are, these are interesting topics. Um, so I, I'm excited to talk about it all. So where should we start? Yeah, let's, so, um, I guess we could start with like a recap of the episode. If, uh, you know, for people who, who aren't familiar with, uh, Silicon Valley, um, it's an HBO show that ran, I believe between um, 2013 and it ended in 20, 2018 or 2019. Um, and it follows the full life cycle of a startup from its conception and from the founder's uh, defection from a fang-like company um, <laughs> to <laughs> it itself becoming the big corporation. And um, in the first episode, uh, we start off at uh, at this, we start off at this huge party. Uh, Kid Rock is is performing. No one's appreciating the performance, and it, the episode starts with uh, you know one of my favorite lines: like "There's all this money flying around the valley, and yet none of us, none of it ever comes to us," which is a, a, a sentiment that I, I'm familiar with. Um, I think Anne is becoming familiar with, <laughs> um, and. You know, as we, as we go through the episode, we meet Richard Hendricks, who lives in an incubator um, with this this guy, Ehrlich, who is the, you know, overly arrogant uh, tech bro that many of us in the startup community have learned to hate. And he he works at he works at a big a big company called Huli and they he, he has a side project called Pied Piper. And of course, his coworkers think he's a total fool. Um until he goes to a a TED a TED talk or a TED style talk, um, and that is being hosted by um, a man who is very very against the idea of people going to college, and instead he believes that you should drop out of college and start a company. Uh, you know, I won't say who that reminds us of, but of course that's mm-hmm. a very familiar <laughs> trope. Um, mm-hmm. Richard pitches his his idea. Um, and then suddenly there's this ping pong between the CEO of, of Huli, the company he already works at, and um, this man who he, he, he pit this VC who he pitched his idea to, and um, his idea is proven to have legs after being laughed at. Um, it, it turns out that the, the algorithm for Pied Piper is actually something that is really powerful and really cool. And we're kicked off onto his journey of Pied Piper becoming a real company. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the episode ends with sort of the uh, CEO of the Fang Light Company, Huli, offering a buyout and uh, the more like renegade anti-college investor offering, uh, I think, to buy 10% of the company and then collaborate going forward. So then he like has all these horrible panic attacks and stuff as he stresses out over the decision of whether to take the money uh, or keep the company. And that's how the episode ends on this like note of suspense. Well, actually, no, he, he makes a decision. I'm just not going to reveal what it is. Yep. Um, yes, yeah, so that's the pilot. 
Yeah, so I should confess. So I should confess. I've seen I've seen the first season of the show, um, and um, and I loved it. And then I, I have to confess, I stopped watching it. So I actually haven't seen I haven't seen the rest of the show. So um, I actually have very little idea what happens. But after the first season, I think. I mean, I think that's okay. It the for me, it kind of went off the rails. They like, if I remember correctly, they 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 introduced like a crypto plot line or something. I don't even know if that's true. I just remember being like, eh. I'm over it. And at, at, at this point, I had moved uh, to the South Bay. So I really, really was <laughs> didn't need to watch it on HBO. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Um, you, know, you know, to be honest, I think I had the opposite journey. Like I watched the first season, didn't really care that much. Uh, but then I really, really got into it with the later seasons. And I think that that was partly because in those intervening years, I like, went to law school on the East Coast, got into just, you know, straightforward New York financial stuff. And I thought like, oh, this is like so neat how independent these guys are. Like, this is so cool. I should do that thing. Except then I realized that I don't actually know anything about technology or like understand anything, like what I could even possibly do with any of that. So I never followed through on that whatsoever. But I think I used it as a sort of like escapist fantasy uh, as I was just sort of doing the drudgery of working at like a regular bank on the East Coast. So I think Silicon Valley is great until the end. Yeah, did it get so so I actually had sort of a funny experience. So I I, I watched the first I love the first season. I, I thought actually the first season was actually quite quite accurate in many ways. Probably <laughs> probably more accurate than a, lot, than a lot of people who watched it realized. Um, <laughs> like I, my big reaction was, oh, yes, I know all those people. Um, and, Indeed, uh, you are. You make a cameo in the first episode, or not a cameo, but you're mentioned in the first episode. Yeah, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Name, name drop, no cameo. No right. Cameo. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I, I thought it was quite, quite wonderful. And then I, I had a chance. Um, I had a chance. I was actually, I actually did a panel with with Mike Judge. Uh, the, the the two of us were interviewed together. Uh, I think it was after the first season. Um, and I, you know, he's the, he's the guy who created the show and sort of is, he's famous. He's the he's previously the creator of Beavis and Butthead. Um, and, uh, I think idiocracy as well as, as well as Silicon Valley. Um, and I actually, a couple of things were interesting in that one is I didn't realize he actually worked as a chip designer in Silicon Valley in like the 1980s. Right. So his, his actual origin story is he himself was one of these guys. Um, now he didn't, you know, he didn't stay in tech and he didn't start a company, but, um, you know, he, he was one of these kind of on the ground engineers. Um, and so, and I think that, that actually grounded the show quite well. Um, but the other thing that happened, honestly, was this was 2014, 2015. 2015, you know, that was right around the time that kind of the public sentiment and the media sentiment on Silicon Valley really started to turn. Um, and actually, I found that conversation a little disconcerting. And then also his, uh, the, the cast members were all there. And, and you could, at least it, it started to feel like there was a hostile edge developing. I, I don't know if that, I actually don't know. I stopped watching the show, so I actually don't know if that showed up in the show. Did the, did the show get kind of darker and kind of more hostile to tech or did it kind of stay you know, I would say like, you know, optimistic and upbeat, at least the way the first season was. No, it, get, it gets super, super dark. Like everyone yeah. is like stabbing each other in the back. Everyone becomes basically evil and manipulative. Uh, the uh, the Lee, Richard Hendricks, like he becomes sort of dark and has like sort of breaks bad at some point in the show. Hmm. And then the the season, the, the series finale is like this basically. I, I think it's is it Kara Swisher who's like doing some kind of like biopic yeah. of them. It's like it's some very sort of like, of you know, of the year it was made in mm. kind of uh, series finale. Yeah, very dark. Yes, exactly. So that, that was the thing, which was it was and, and this is, I think, maybe the actual cultural significance of the pilot and of that first season 
the cultural significance is it's it's the artifact, or what I would propose is it's the artifact of the last phase of tech in Silicon Valley being sort of cute and fluffy and fun and, you know, kind of novel um, and, you know, fundamentally just like positive. Um, it was sort of right before the, right, right before the turn. It's that, it's that last moment kind of right before everything kind of went dark. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know, I don't know how many of these things are secular or cyclical, but you know, that, that, that kind of feeling, you know, it, it, it may never come back. Like tech, tech now just may, may always exist in this kind of new world of hostility. Uh, and if so, this, this will be kind of the last artifact that, that, that people have to look at of what it was like before. Right. Was there some turning, uh, was there some event that caused the turn in public sentiment? So I'm, I, I would say there's, there's two, there's two theories, right? So, so the, the sort of dominant theory, which is kind of generally what you'll hear from kind of the press and commentators uh, and so forth is like, you know, tech was fine when it was kind of small and not that important. Um, but when it actually became important, when it got big, right. And when these companies got much larger and when kind of their impact on society got larger then of course, you know, there was going to be this much, you know, higher level of scrutiny and these companies were going to be found, you know, wanting in all these different ways. And so that's that, you know, that's the sort of narrative of like, you know, it's time for a higher level of scrutiny. It's time for more criticism and sort of, the, you know, sort of the, the right things are happening. Like this, this sort of turn was, was deserved and necessary. Um, you know, the alternate kind of view is um, that tech got a, kind of got pulled into our national political dynamic, right? Um, and tech occupies sort of a weird place in American politics and Western politics generally, right? Which is, um, you know, tech, tech, you know, the, the, the stereotype is that tech is like this libertarian, you know, weird kind of alternate world. Like, you know, the, re the reality is like Silicon Valley is, you know, like 90 or 95 percent just straight doctrinaire, you know, kind of blue Democrat. You know, Hillary, Hillary Warren kind of straight down the middle, you know, Obama Democrat, um, and then increasingly radicalizing, you know, further to the left. Um, and so tech is itself kind of a creature of the left. But, you know, the left in this country, you know, has also radicalized at the same time. And the left increasingly, you know, in this theory, basically, you know, hates, you know, <laughs> capitalism, business, um, you know, money, you know, a lot of the kinds of people who work in tech. Um, and then, you know, that, that whole kind of thing basically like hit critical mass in 2015 and 2016 when Trump won the, you know, for, first the primary and then the general election. And of course then, you know, tech, tech, you know, ever since has been sort of heavily blamed for that. Um, and, and so there's this, there's this kind of, it's almost like it's the subject of this like civil war almost between, you know, almost within the left. And then of course the, the right in America, you know, basically doesn't like tech for co completely different reasons, which basically is the right views tech as a left wing phenomenon, because all the people, almost all the people in tech are left wing. Um, and then, of course, people on the right now are very upset about censorship and deplatforming and what they view as political bias on the part of these companies that are basically consistent entirely of Democrats. And, and so basically, in that second theory, we've gotten pulled into this much larger national dynamic, which is just bigger than we are. And we're just basically a little cork kind of bobbing on the on, on the ocean of national politics. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I'm not I don't feel smart enough to kind of judge which of those is correct. But but uh, I think those are the, the, the two kind of poles to think about it from. Right, right. That's true. And then there was the other complicating factor that in 2016, uh, sort of the influence of, of tech and social networks was used to explain the election outcome. Right. Uh, and then that was a further way to vilify it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, if you're in the second camp that I just described, then basically what you point to is when Obama won, you know, the presidency in 2012, like there were all these amazing stories and like all these, you know, the Guardian, the Guardian and, you know, the, the cover of magazines and all this stuff about how like wonderful the Internet was for democracy. Right. Because, it, you know, basically it was like the Obama campaign used big data and wasn't it great. 
Right, the Arab Spring as well was at the same time. Exactly, right. And so the, the, the cynical view, right, the cynical view, that second, that second thesis is the more cynical thesis. The cynical thesis is, you know, when, when, you know, when, when, a, when a left-wing person wins, the Internet's great and wonderful. When a right-wing person wins, the Internet's, you know, evil um, and lead, leading to the end of democracy. Um, you know, you know, like I say, you know, maybe I, a lot of people, at least on the right, kind of believe that's the dynamic. Obviously, a lot of people on the left think there's something more fundamentally serious going on. But but in either event, like this is why I say, like, I, I think this is like a permanent change. I think the, the, the days of being cute and fluffy and everybody just being happy, you know, with us are <laughs> I think they're over. I think you make like a really important point about this, like narrative shift, though, because it like it did. Be, it used to be that or at least it felt like from my perspective that tech like existed outside of politics in a way. And it was really about this like front, it was a frontier. It was like the classic American prosperity story. And it feels like, especially when the pilot of Silicon Valley airs, this is like the height of people hearing all these stories of like, you know, these kids, these like 19 and 20 year olds went to California and now they're, they're billionaires. And it was like, it, it, it was the app bubble, right? Like this was like when, you know, the, the, the height, the height of this. Um, and it's such a like stark comparison, uh, from what a lot, what most people are familiar with, um, you know, with respect to like prosperity stories, which is working your way up, like really grinding in this much different way. Um, you know, desperately trying to get a seat at the table, but everyone on the West coast was just building their own table and those tables were unicorns. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, there's another twist to kind of how this plays out culturally, I think, which is exactly to your point, which is, you know, if you talk to, Al, you know, if you read, I, I don't know, but if you, if you read interviews with Oliver Stone, right, who famously made the movie Wall Street in the 1980s, right, it was, you know, the Michael Douglas, Gordon, you know, the Gordon Gecko movie, Charlie Sheen, um, you know, he, he clearly, you know, Oliver Stone is like a, a far left, you know, kind of guy. And he, he, he made a movie that he thought was just an absolutely stinging, biting, vicious endorsement, or sorry, uh, critique of the culture of greed on wall street um and to his you know enormous shock and alarm you know an entire generation of kind of people getting college kids basically saw that movie and they were like oh wow i want to be gordon gecko right um and you know that led to this huge surge of people actually going into finance um and then you know i think the the movie the social network right which was what in 20 what year was that that was like 10 years ago it's 2010 um, 2010 yeah exactly 2010 um, you know, again, that movie, like if you, you know, read interviews with Aaron Sorkin, who wrote that movie, it was, you know, he's very, very hostile to the internet. He was, he was very early in being very hostile towards tech. Um, and that movie was, I think, intended to be, again, a very stinging indictment of, to, to your point, this new generation of kind of, you know, this, this sort of app entrepreneurs. Um, but I've talked to many young founders, you know, since 2010, who are like, yeah, I saw that movie at a junior high or high school. And I was like, yeah, I want to be Mark Zuckerberg. And so, you know, th these things have a way of backfiring. And, and I kind of wonder, I kind of wonder whether there, you know, there must be kids in their dorm room or whatever, in their bedroom at home during high school who are watching, you know, Silicon Valley right now, basically saying, you know, and, I, you know, as you say, as the series gets darker as it goes and, and still coming out of it being like, yeah, Richard Hendricks, like he's my role model. Like, that's what I want to go do. And so it, to your point, like the, the frontier, the, the frontier is real. Like the technology really is a new frontier, quite literally. And so there, there is a certain kind of person who wants to be a part of that. And they, they may just interpret these critiques as like more evidence that that's what they should be doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's definitely true. I, you know, it, it's it's funny that you you bring this up because the, when uh, the Devil Wears Prada also had that impact on people. Like everyone wanted to work right. at a fashion magazine. And it's so funny. Like, right. I think it was like two or three years after that movie came out that interns started suing Condé Nast and Hearst um, because they were being underpaid. And it seemed like, like maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't related, but the timing just felt too, too perfect 
Mm-hmm. Do you guys know the term tall poppy syndrome? Yeah. I don't. Yeah, so, so okay, so, so tall, tall poppy syndrome is something, it shows up in different cultures. Um, uh, and um, I think, I forget where it's, it might've been named in the Scandinavian version of it, but it shows up in different cultures, which basically is, the tall poppy syndrome basically is, you know, a culture in which if you stick your head up and you try to be sort of different and better and more successful than the people around you, you basically get your head cut off, right? And it's like the tall poppy gets, you know, gets chopped, right? Um, right. And so it's basically, it's any culture in which striving to be different, better, you know, striving to have, you know, to build your own thing, to own your own business, um, to, you know, create your own art, um, you know, just to, to basically to stand out from the crowd and, and, but, you know, which means like to, to be excellent, you know, to be excellent, to be world-class or something to have you know, merit, and then, you know, to have the temerity to be, to be proud, right. Of, of your, of your performance and your achievement like that, you know, there's just this, there are a lot of cultures in which there's this very hostile you know, kind of reaction to that. Um, and so, you know, what one kind of lens on this is we, you know, in the U.S. and more broadly throughout a lot of, you know, for sure Europe these days, um, you know, just we have just like raging kind of, you know, pandemic of tall poppy syndrome uh, running around. And, you know, you, you, you feel this with like this, just these increased basically demands for conformity and, you know, this sort of targeting of people who are, who are kind of unusual and different. Um, and so, you know, like, and, and by the way, like I find that horrifying, like I, I don't like that at all. Um, on the other hand, you know, there, there are people who are still just like, okay, I don't care if they're going to try to take me down. I don't care if they're going to call me stupid or weird or whatever it is, um, or greedy. Um, I want to build something for myself. I, I want to go explore the frontier and I want to build my own thing and I want to create something and I want to do something that's different and that's going to last. Um, and so, you know, the, the tall poppy syndrome may in some sense actually create more people uh, who are like, actually, I don't want to, I don't want to live like that. Right. I, <laughs> I don't want to live in the, I don't want to live in the pod. I don't want to eat the bugs. Right. I, w- I want to do something different and better. Do you think um, people in tech like err more towards the side of, you know, trying to to break the mold and trying to to, to get ahead, or do you think that uh, the more like, uh, you know, the 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 bug man stereotype of the technologist is is more common than not these days? So it's a it's I think there's a little bit of both. So look, there are a lot of people, and I mean, this is you know what we do for a living. Um, is there are a lot of people who are like real outliers, um, and they really want to do something different, um, and they're they're not daunted by any of this stuff, and and so so they go for it. So the good the good news is there are still a lot of them, and we meet them every day. Um, you know, um, I would say there are a lot of people who are like that who feel very guilty about it. Right, which is sort, of, and this goes to my my point, which is like the the cliche, the sort of stereotype of Silicon Valley as some libertarian paradise is not actually true. Like libertarianism is like a fringe position. You know, most even tech entrepreneurs are, I would say, again, sort of straight blue Democrat, and so they're kind of you know very adventurous and iconoclastic in their um, business life, um, professional life, but they're very, um, I would say, uh, conformist in their politics. Um, and they, they've, you know, they want to have their kick in it too. They want to be viewed as like brave, you know, fearless entrepreneurs and, and, and developers of new technology on the one hand, but also like, you know, deeply, you know, sort of politically correct moral people <laughs> on the other hand. And that, you know, that, that used to be kind of a line that you could straddle, right. During like the Clinton era and even the Obama era, but now, now you really can't. Right. And so there, there's a lot of like, there's like a self-hating thing that's going on. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is like, you know, Silicon Valley is, you know, Silicon Valley goes through waves of kind of being trendy as a career path versus not. And so, you know, you also, you know, we're, we're in one of those modes where like, you know, from a business standpoint, the tech industry is, you know, doing really well. So we, we are also getting a lot of what you might call sort of careerists 
right? So we're, we're getting a lot of people who show up who might, you know, in a different era have just gone to work at an investment bank or, or you know, at a, at, a, at a consulting firm or something who are showing up. And, and, you know, you can kind of always tell, like, they're not actually that interested in the kinds of nuts and bolts of what these companies do. They just do this as like the best career path. Um, and so, you know, there is also that element to it. It's, it's kind of a, a blend of, of all of those types. Oh, and then, and then of course, and then of course, and then there, and then there is the libertarian fringe, right? There is sort of the Peter Thiel kind of, you know, Elon Musk, or less Elon, but more Peter, you know, kind of universe of the people who actually define themselves very differently. And they're, you know, they're not on board with kind of the dominant politics of the era. They're, you know, and I would say they're increasingly fearless. Like they're, they're increasingly, I would say, appalled by the broader cultural trends and just like determined to buck the, you know, to kind of, bu to, to, to buck the mores of the time and, and chart their own path. Well, it's like those, I mean, those are like really like web three people. And then of course, like charter cities. I mean, it just, it, it feels, they're like really, really thinking big in a way that I, I don't think, you know, will be mainstream for, for several, several years. Although we're getting there. Yeah, the crypto, you know, the, the I totally agree. The, the crypto people in particular, the web three people, um, the, the, like that's a really interesting phenomenon. I mean, for sure, it's a very interesting technological phenomenon. It's a very interesting, uh, you know, kind of the, the kinds of things that are getting built. Um, and, you know, we, we, we put a lot of effort in, in, in that space. And then, yeah, it, it is it is it is for sure. You know, it's the most um, it it is attracting the most aggressive and iconoclastic personalities in the, in the industry. And I think at a, at a pretty rapid rate now. Um, and so it's actually it's actually developing its own culture. And it's a different culture than sort of mainstream Silicon Valley. And I, I think in an exciting way. So Anne is sort of um, in a really interesting position because she is both really plugged into um, like the corporate world, but she's also a film, like a, a very talented filmmaker and an artist. And she's really plugged into the art scene too. Um, does any of this resonate for like what you experience in your day to day, Anne? Um, yeah. I mean, something I was thinking about was that, you know, there was sort of this, uh, I'll put this in, in terms that I hope are, are relatively neutral, but there was sort of a, a belief that if uh, the Democrats won the 2020 presidential election, there would be a sort of return to normalcy and an end to this sort of like cultural war and like, you know, uh, purification, like, you know, riots on Twitter or whatever um, that seemed to be taking over the arts over the Trump years, like things could stop being polarized and go back to being sort of more free and more focused on aesthetics and things like that. Um, and it feels like that isn't really happening. I mean, I might be missing something, but it seems like there hasn't really been a reset to like an environment of greater cultural freedom or political freedom. Instead, there's sort of more than ever a microscope on people to see if they're doing something politically incorrect in the arts. Um, and that makes it feel very, very difficult to do anything creative without going fringe and doing a sort of, you know, plot against the president style <laughs> film release. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, right. Like, you know, I, I don't want to like name names or anything, but, you know, like I know a number of people who over the last couple of years have made really interesting films uh, that for whatever reason, say, you know, it was a documentary about someone that had been Me too or like the film sort of dealt with, you know, sex in a um, like cheeky sort of like politically incorrect, like uh, subtly maybe like anti-Me Too way. Like those films are just like totally like forced off of the festival circuit and there's no place for them to go. And it's not like those people have reacted by saying, oh, gee, I guess I really was wrong. I guess I really should have been making a different documentary. Instead, the reaction is always, always just like, I hate you guys and I want to do my own thing and I'm going to go to like whatever cultural circle I can go to or I'm going to be allowed to do my own thing and feel free. 
uh, sort of like the, the cancellation of the arts always radicalizes people more, maybe for the better, uh, but definitely not the way uh, the sort of Twitter mob intends for it to go. Uh, and it sounds like there's sort of a similar dynamic in tech where like the more people are um, sort of like cramped, uh, the more they go to the, the fringe. It doesn't actually bring people back into the dominant fold. Yeah, I mean, my, my basic view, and I think what you're describing is very similar to what's happening in tech. I, it's, it's basically like in the current environment, basically, people, the, the forces at play are basically forcing everybody to kind of declare more strongly than ever, like basically, essentially either far left or far right. Yeah. Right. Kind of your point, like, which is like, you really either, you need to really sign up for the kind of dominant dominant uh, 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 regime, or you basically are like, okay, I am I am off this program. It, to your point, I'm off this program and I have to go find a new world. Um, and, mm-hmm. I, and you, by the way, including like a new set of friends, right? A new set of colleagues, you know, maybe an entirely new right. industry, maybe an entirely new way of you know, building things. Um, and so that, that seems like it's happening. Um, you know, the other thing that just seems, I think, fairly obvious is, um, you know, to your point on like post the election, um, you know, the, the, if you if you look at what's happening, like with deplatforming, all the deplatforming pressures, like before <laughs> before Biden won, the deplatforming pressures, like it was like I would describe as overwhelmingly left on right. Um, mm-hmm. which was, it was sort of left-wing people demanding right-wing people get kicked off. Um, now, much more, uh, not entirely, but much more is left on left, um, meaning it's basically people further left demanding the people who are more centrist, right, conform. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I sort of think of it as like a consolidation phase. Um, and so it's, it's almost like, and, 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 and by the way, this kind of makes sense, which is you kind of see politically, like when, whenever there's sort of single party control in a political system, what you, what you don't get is un, uniformity. What you get is sort of civil war. You get, you get internal divisions, right? Because all of a sudden it's like now you've split up into different factions, in, you know, within the broader movement. Um, and so it, it, it feels, and, and by the way, you see that actually what's happening right now with all this you know, legislation in Congress, right? Which is it's basically entirely a civil war between Democrats. Um, and so it, it feels like we're, we're going to be in that phase for quite a while. And then, you know, whatever's happening on the right or on the fringe is somewhat off the front page and maybe in a good way. Mm-hmm. No, that's an interesting way of putting it that you either have to be far left or far right. I mean, I think that might be the difficulty that people who like, you know, maybe self-identify as like normal people or apolitical people suddenly find themselves vilified by their colleagues. And at that point, they do actually maybe have to become political. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then, you know, can you can you actually, you know, this is always kind of the question, which, you know, can you actually punch out like, you know, it's like, okay, <laughs> right, if my choices are far left or far right, and I don't like either one of those choices, can I just simply be apolitical? Right? And and, and can I punch out entirely? And then, of course, there, there's a big question there, which is one is like, first of all, you, you then have to give up all pretension of having political power, you know, which, which, right. which most people just can't do, because most people want to feel like, you know, that we're in a democracy, they have they have a voice and a vote. Um, and that, so it feels weird to just kind of declare sort of political bankruptcy, personally. Um, and then the other is like, you know, who are their friends going to be, right? Uh, and what what kind of scene can they be a part of? Um, and so I, I like I, my guess is there's a significant set of people developing who are basically are basically you know politically bankrupt, politically homeless, and 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 so therefore they they have no natural like shelling point to rally around, you know, which mm-hmm. means they have no way to naturally connect with each other. Um, you know, except to the extent that they can find a scene, right? They can, to your point, like they can find a creative scene or they can find a technological scene or something of people who are, you know, going to, going to, are going to be more like that. And, and, and maybe those scenes are going to be the ones that actually have like a lot more creativity in the years ahead because people will get yeah, off, yeah. get off the political obsession and go back to, you know, building things. You know, I remember I had this like very strange experience for a couple of months um, last fall where I was very briefly hanging out with comedians because I, I, I started going to a local bar that like, 
was a comedy bar, but they weren't allowed to do comedy because of Corona. So they would just sort of like sit around like semi-illegally and they didn't talk about politics. And it was like the only group of friends I'd ever had that didn't talk about politics because all they talked about was how they wanted to kill themselves because they were just depressed mm -hmm. comedians out of work. Mm -hmm. um, but before and after that, I've, I've never found it. And I think that, I mean, obviously, like it's almost too obvious to say, but, you know, last summer, especially with like the rise of, you know, like critical race theory books becoming popularized, a thing that you give your babies and stuff like that. Um, there was sort of the refrain of like, if you're not actively anti-racist, you are racist. Right. So, I mean, per se, there's no ability to punch out at that point. Like when, you know, on orientation at your job, you're told that if you don't declare yourself to be anti-racist, like you should lose your job, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I do think there is a phenomenon of like, people who are what I call defensively right wing, where like they might have been in any other time period, like center, maybe center right, the generically conservative, like they now feel like they have to identify as far right to protect themselves because it's the only place that will like really accept converts. You can always become more right wing, but you can't, once you're ousted from the, the left, that's it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And and you know the the nature of the uh, the nature of the world being the way it is right now, like most of those journeys, I think are kind of happening in private. Um, and yeah. one of the things that's hard, to, one of the things that's really hard to figure out right now is like, okay, like you, it, one of the hardest things to figure out right now is like, what do people actually think, right? Mm -hmm. Right, because like the level of preference falsification that's happening, and so how, how many people are on the journey that you just described, and basically just like think they're alone or think they're a member of a small of a very small group, but you know, by, by the way, maybe they are, maybe it's a, a real exception thing, and most people will just conform, um, you know, or maybe there's actually a growing movement of these people, and they just haven't discovered each other yet. Yeah, I mean, um, the level of preference falsification must be like higher now than it was in the Soviet Union. Like, I mean, Katya, you must have had a similar experience. Like, I was on a film shoot last week, and I realized that every single person on the shoot had secretly told me that they were, like, um, like secretly conservative or, like, secretly a little bit conservative or thought they were the most conservative person at this film shoot. Like, every single one. You know, but, but like, yet, at, at that point. But, yeah, they didn't know that about each other? No. I mean, so it's a, it's a really weird thing. I, what I am starting to notice, though, it's really interesting. So like a lot of my, uh, you know, my, my journalism and my writing is about um, how Tumblr grew and how that how Tumblr dynamics kind of escaped the containment zone. And we all kind of know about like woke morality and the unpersoning that happens with, you know, woke ethics. Um, you're starting to see that happen on the right as well, um, both online and in, in real life, um, and not in the way that it always has sort of happened. You know, of course, people have been accused of or like <clears throat> actually found to be gay or, you know, like whatever thing and like they get they get ousted. But um, I, I'm starting to see on like on online, really, like uh, right wing cancellations. Um, hmm. And usually that comes in, you know, you, you obviously won't be called racist, but you will be called a fed. And it's a really interesting thing because it's the same, it's the same dynamics. And I think it's partially because we, now we have like two like mirrored sides and now the safe side is starting to have the same t like flavor of corruption as the proven unsafe side. Yeah, you know, it's funny, the, the, the Greeks, the Gre you know, you'll, you'll recall, like, you know, the most famous philosopher of all time, Socrates, you'll, you'll recall how he died. Um, like, he was canceled. Um, you know, he was basically, right, convicted of wrong, wrong think um, and of, you know, corrupting the morals of the youth and, you know, forced to commit suicide. 
um, you know, the, the part of the story that often gets overlooked is he was actually offered an alternative to the death sentence, um, which was, was something they did in those days. They, there was actually an alternative to death sentences, and the alternative to the death sentence was exile. Um, and so he had all these friends who like showed up in his cell and basically were like, we'll get you out of the city. You know, you'll be exiled, but you'll be free and you won't have to, um, you know, you won't have to worry about this anymore. Um, and actually as part of the Greek system of governance at that time, which was exile basically as an acceptable substitute sentence for death. And the reason why it was an acceptable substitute for death is because it was viewed in that culture as basically the same as death, right? Like if, if you're exiled, like you lose your family, you lose your friends, you lose all your worldly possessions, you lose your citizenship, you lose your religion. Right. You, you, you lose basically your entire community. Right. And, and sort of any rights that you have. And you were out in the world on your own. And in those days, that meant that the next person who came across you was probably just going to try to kill you. Um, and so, you know, there's something very deep seated in the in the scape, you know, sort of the, the scapegoat cycle. Um, you know, and in a sense, it's like cancellation as, as a term is almost too light of a term for what's happening. Right. It's probably exile. Right. It's, it's probably the better term. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and, and it's basically, it's a, you know, it's a, this goes to like, you know, Rene Girard's theories, but it's like, you know, it, it is fundamentally at, at heart, it's a, it's a mechanism of social cohesion, right? It's, it's a, it's a mechanism, a mechanism of conformity. And of course, the role of the, of the canceled or the exiled or the, you know, the scapegoat, the, you know, the role is to basically be the, you know, symbolic, you know, individual who's punished to basically cleanse the community, you know, of its internal dissension to bring everybody back together again. Um, and so it, it's an, it's an old pattern. It's a very easy pattern to slip into, you know, it's, 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 it's mob psychology. Um, you know, th this, th I'm generally a skeptic. I'm generally, a, I'm generally on the skeptical side of people who say, you know, the internet caused X, uh, cause I think generally that's just the internet itself being scapegoated for, for more general kind of human behaviors. But in this case, I, I think it is fair to say like the, the internet, the internet in many ways or social media is generally is a very effective scapegoating machine and a very effective mobbing machine. And yeah, I think there's no reason to expect that that, that activity would be confined to any one group. I think it, it's a it's a more general phenomenon and it's something that I think people should be very conscious of and should you know generally try to avoid. Do you get the sense that there's um, a, a waning of uh, cancel culture over the last year? So I think at some point, you know, at some point, just like, and again, whichever sort of group it's in, at some point, like this sort of extreme histrionic grandstanding um, that has a lot of, you know, basically hypocrisy and illegitimacy to it when you dig into it, um, like at some point that gets old, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, it's like exciting, you know, it's like, I don't know, I don't know the witch hunter. It's exciting, you know, it's exciting to burn the witch the first time, you know, the 15th time mm -hmm. or the 50th time, you have to imagine the crowd in Salem was standing around saying, okay, like, you know, really? you know, we're just, we're going to do this forever. Um, and so, you know, maybe a little bit of that, but, you know, on the other hand, like, you know, to Gerard argued, like actually Gerard's full theory, he argued like this, this is so deep seated in sort of, you know, human culture, this, 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 this mechanism of scapegoating is, is so deeply, deeply seated, deeply rooted that it will always happen. Um, and, and then actually Gerard made this very kind of clever point. He said that the thing about the scapegoating instinct in human psychology is, you can be fully aware at a meta level of the scapegoating instinct. Like you can be like a world expert, Rene Girard scholar or like psychologist and like fully understand this mechanism of scapegoating. Um, and, and yet, you know, when the next one comes along, you are very likely to join the mob just like everybody else. And your argument is always the same, which is yes, yes, I understand scapegoating is bad in general, but this one, this one is absolutely morally required, right? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. this guy, we can't let off the hook. Right. And, and what Gerard argued is like, that's always the case. Like that, that, that is always the case. Like the scapegoat is always viewed as the exception to the general patterns of behavior. 
Um, and so I don't know, I'd, I'd like to believe we will kind of figure out that there's a force at loose in the world that maybe is not that great and that it'll, it'll moderate out over time and people get tired of it. But I'm, I'm kind of skeptical. I think it might just be, you know, it's a thing that's always happened. That's the other thing is it's a thing that's always happened. Like it, it's not new. Um, it's a thing that's always happened and kind of in every time and place it's happened. Um, I'll just give you an example of it another time and place it happened. So there's this incredible book called the God that failed. Uh, which is a, a, it's a sort of history of, of communism in the West. And it was written, there's six essays in it that were written by uh, American and European communists from the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, who later on by the 1950s kind of realized they'd made a huge mistake. And so it, it's their stories of how they kind of, you know, kind of deprogrammed themselves from communism and kind of figured out that, that it was, that it was actually bad. And one of the stories, Richard Wright, who was sort of one of the top, you know, uh, African-American novel literary figures of the like 1920s, 1930s, um, his essay in it is really striking because he, he describes in the essay a full Stalinist show trial um, in downtown Chicago uh, in like 1935. Um, entirely, by the way, entirely African-American, entirely, you know, basically Chicago African-American communists at that time. Um, and they basically, the way he describes it is they just picked a guy in the group and they just like destroyed his life. Right. And they, they had like a, they had an auditorium and they had like a full like show trial with him, like breaking down and sobbing on stage, like not even understanding what he'd done. And everybody was like, this guy's got to, you know, this guy's got to go. And nobody could, nobody could quite name what his actual offenses were. Right. And so, you know, that's one of the things that broke him from the spell of communism at the time, which was, OK, that <laughs> let's not do that again. You know, but here we are like, you know, we're, we're, we're back to that. So it, 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 it may be so deep seated that it's just a, it's just a permanent thing. So I totally agree with you that it's something that we've seen throughout time. Um, and it is like it is human nature. But what I, what I think is a little bit different uh, now is that there's almost like especially for someone who isn't like online, right? For just like your average everyday person who like might get canceled um, or unpersoned or shunned because they had an accidentally racist menu item at their cafe or something. There is now no counterculture for them to escape to. Like there is no underground. Whereas before at the very least, there was an underground where you could be sort of the like, yeah, I'm not allowed in polite society, but like at least I could go to the gay bar or something. All of those venues now have been colonized by this ideology. Yeah, and actually, right to your point, like the the more alt the lifestyle, the more, <laughs> generally speaking, they've been exhibiting this behavior. Um, so there's something ironic going on there. But um, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I think like the I realized the level of fear yesterday when I was like working with my layout person on a, on a book that we're printing. And um, she realized that there was an essay about a Japanese film and the background color was yellow. And she was scared that we were gonna get criticized or called racist for having yellow pages on this essay about a Japanese film. Mm-hmm. For sure. Like honestly afraid of that. For sure, for sure. Well, so this goes to the, you know, the other thing that you guys talk a lot about, I think, or tell me if, if, if this is right, which is basically like, my assumption, I've swung all the way around to kind of a pretty radical view on, on kind of how culture works in the modern world, which is basically my, my conclusion now basically is the internet just like eats all culture. Like all culture is internet culture. And it, to whatever extent there remains any culture in, at least in the West, that's not internet culture, it is going to become internet culture. Um, and, um, and, and, and so I, I view like your example of like somebody with a restaurant with a, with a, with a, with an unfortunate menu choice, like, 
you know, if it, basically it's like, if you're not up on exactly what leading edge internet politics are right now, like you are at real risk um, because those are the dominant politics and they are, you know, <laughs> you may not be interested in French internet politics, but they're interested in you. Um, and I, I, oh, totally. I, I think people might be really underestimating the extent to which internet politics are all politics. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I completely agree. Like I, I really think that and this, I mean, this is one of my things that I say that makes me sound like a crazy person, but the dissident right as it exists online seems like it's only online, but I give it, I give it like seriously, like five years before like Walmart has like a knockoff raw, raw egg nationalist cookbook, if they don't have it already. Like we, this is about to over, I think it's going to actually overtake wokeness eventually, which is ah. as at least as a trendy thing. I mean, I, and I think the audiences in a more mainstream way are opening up, but a normie or like someone who, you know, has Twitter under their real name and they're not really using it might not see that. I mean, I'm, I'm totally aligned with you that online is real life and there is no touch grass. There's no grass to touch. Right, right, right. So, uh, tell me, my theory is why this happened. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think I, I, th I don't think I'm familiar with it. Okay. So uh, you guys know the, okay. So the concept of the OODA loop, have you guys heard the concept of the OODA loop? Okay, so no. the OODA loop is a, is a is this is what I think is happening. So uh, this is why the internet politics, internet culture takes over everything. So it, basically, the, the short version, the, the TLDR is uh, faster cycle times. Uh, internet culture just evolves faster, and that that the, the fact that it evolves faster guarantees it takes everything over. Um, the reason that's the case is this, this theory of what's called the OODA loop. And so the OODA loop is this concept in, in military warfare strategy, um, and it basically describes the decision-making cycle if you're in if you're in if you're in a war situation. Um, and the OODA is an acronym, and OODA stands for basically the four stages of basically taking action in a military context, which is observe. So you know, notice your surroundings, like take take stock of what's happening. Orient, which is basically like fix your own position and set of choices, you know, with it within the context. Um, decide, you know, make the decision of what you're going to do and then act, right, which is actually pull the trigger, right, in the sense of like either deciding to shoot or deciding to move or deciding to, you know, call for, you know, backup or like what, whatever it is that, that you might do. Um, and so there's this sort of theory of warfare that has become kind of very dominant in that world, which basically says um, the right way to kind of conduct yourself in war is to try to have a faster OODA loop than the other guy. Um, and, you know, in, in a sense, that's just like an obvious thing, because it's like, yes, obviously, if you can make decisions faster, you'll, you know, you'll do better. But there's a second layer to the theory that basically says, if you can get inside the other guy's OODA loop, which is to say, if you can make decisions faster routinely than the other guy, um, then basically, you can break his ability to ever get through his OODA loop. Right. Which is to say, right. So let's say it takes me whatever, you know, two minutes to get through my OODA loop. It takes the other guy, um, you know, four, you know, three minutes to get through his. Um, as we kind of iterate through this, we're going through our OODA loops. Um, at some point, he just can't keep up. Right. You, you, you become one loop ahead and then two loops ahead and then three loops ahead and then four loops ahead of the other guy. And then at some point, the other guy basically just like experienced a psychological collapse. Right, because he, he can't get he can no longer get through any loop because by the time he observes and orients and is ready to decide, you've already been through your loop again, and now the situation has changed, and now the landscape has changed, the set of choices have changed, and now he has to start his loop over again, right? And, and so, and basically, in the theory, that that leads to a state of psychological collapse. At some point, the other guy basically is just like basically psychologically melts down, can't process what's happening, can't react, and just like sits there stunned, and then basically either surrenders or you know or gets killed. 
Um, and so, so anyway, so the goal of, of, of basically modern military doctrine on this is basically to, 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 to use faster decision-making cycle times to destroy the other, the other guy's psychology. Um, so, so I think that's what the internet is doing to every other form of media and culture, right? Which is internet politics, internet culture, internet memes, internet trends, right? Are like, they're like, they've hyper-accelerated. Right. And, and the process of the formation of a new idea and the propagation of that idea and the adoption of that idea and then the criticisms that idea receives, the evolutionary pressures, the development of the next idea. It's just happening so fast online that if you're sitting in the offline world and you're trying to produce a TV show or you're trying to write a book. Right. Or you're trying to like write even like a magazine article and you're trying to go through a month long editing process. Like you might as well not even try because by the time your thing actually comes out, right, it's just too late. It's already stale. It's already old. It's already behind. Um, yeah. And so basically, what it, when that's, what I, what I think has happened is basically, therefore, all of these offline cultural media forms, I think they've just surrendered. I think they've just given up trying to have their own original point of view in anything. And I think instead, what they're doing now is they're just chasing internet culture. Right. Um, like the only thing you can do basically is just like chase whatever's on Twitter or Reddit or right or 4chan or, or Tumblr. Uh, and, and you see this, right? If you, you, you take any given, you see this in TV shows all the time now. I'll just give you an example. I tried to, you know, I, I always love this graphic novel, famous graphic novel series called uh, Why the Last Man. Um, and they just made this huge budget adaptation for Fox. And I, I started watching the first episode and like literally it's wall to wall Twitter politics. Right. Like it, it, the, the writers have injected this entire new overlay of Twitter politics on top of a graphic novel that was written like 20 years ago that had no conception of any of this stuff. And it's like, oh, and, and you just know what happened, which is all in the writer's room. All they can talk about is whatever happened on Twitter that day. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the show now is just basically reduced to being an attempt to just chase Internet culture. Um, and so anyway, I, I think this is why basically it's, it's all over. Like the, the other forms of media will continue to be important financially and, you know, they'll have audiences and so forth. But the, the content will just be whatever was on the, was on Twitter six months ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely am completely aligned with that. I, and I think that's a really smart way to describe it. It's it, we're we're slaves to this, really. Right. And it's not just in terms of like topic either. I mean, I think it also goes back to this question about can an offline person avoid being um like canceled for online politics? And the answer is no, because like by the time that they've made a decision or done something, that thing may have become problematic uh, in a way they would never have predicted through like 20 cycles of like iteration uh, on Twitter. Yep. Um, yeah. So like the person who thinks that he can just sit in his office and like doesn't have a Twitter account or whatever is still at the mercy of these online forces, whether he wants to be or not. Yeah, I alluded to it earlier, but there was an old joke in uh, the Soviet Soviet Russia, which is you know you may not be interested in communism, but communi communism is interested right, in you, right? <laughs> and it, right, right, right. It, it, kind of, it kind of feels like the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah, it is like uh, the perfect. Uh, that's actually, I think, like the 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 perfect joke for this. It's it it's it's creeping into into like into everything um you know i so i got into i got into a big argument about this this past week and it was like my first time ever becoming like the main character of twitter which very funnily was the day after Anne was the main character of twitter it's like some kind of cosmic marriage here <laughs> um you know about how like if you you know if your if your mom doesn't hear about this stuff 
on on Twitter or if she doesn't read the diluted version in the New York Times, she's going to see it on Tucker Carlson tonight. Like it's just it's it's we're fully immersed in it in every in every way possible. Um, I mean, do, do you think that like there's anything that could slow it down or like regulate this this cycle or we're just trapped in this weird psychological warfare forever? So uh, let me argue, let me try to argue the positive, <laughs> the positive side, <laughs> which is not an argument for the positive side of today, but in, in, in the future. And you do see some of this today, um, basically, which is, it's, I sometimes describe this as like, yes, it's like very like dramatic and scary, but at least it's interesting, um, right? Which is, you know, most people, most people historically never got to participate directly in kind of cultural formation. Right. Like, you know, you know, it's sort of cliche, but like, you know, old media really was top down. Right. And, you know, why, why were, you know, why were certain singers or novelists or whatever so famous? It's just because there were so few of them. Right. Because it was only so many people who could ever get a book contract or a record contract or a TV show. Um, and so, um, you know, or so only so many people were ever allowed to basically speak in public in front of an audience. Um, and so, you know, most people have just been on the passive receiving end of culture basically their entire lives. Um, and, and by the way, when, you know, when I was a kid, like that, that was, that was actually the critique of the media, by the way, by, 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 you know, the same kinds of people today who critique the internet for destroying everything used to critique television for destroying everything. And it was the opposite critique. It was basically the critique that television, the, the, the famous book on this is called Amused to Death um, by one of the, one of these critics. And, and basically the argument was basically television is this vast wasteland of basically, you know, fake bullshit. And, you know, it's, it's this, you know, sitting in front of the TV for eight hours, is just going to degrade, you know, your brain and culture and everything else and kids. Um, and we're going to become, you know, literally a, a, you know, a world of basically these passive couch potatoes who never have any original thoughts and never do anything. And that was like this, this overwhelming wall of, of criticism kind of when, you know, in the seventies and eighties, um, you know, now the criticism is kind of the opposite, right? It's like now the criticism is everybody is too engaged, right? Everybody's like too involved and there's like everybody's too online and everybody's like too involved in all these, you know, panics or too, you know, and all these, in the, you know, you're in the wrong, you know, everybody's in the wrong Facebook group. Everybody's, you know, says the wrong thing or, you know, this or that, um, you know, the things people are getting attacked for now are the things that, you know, something that they say or something that they do. Um, and so, you know, the criticism is kind of flipped and, and uh, you know, it's indicative of, of course, what's happened with the technology, which is, you know, we've, we've taken, you know, media, media technology has gone from one way to two way. We've, you know, for better or worse, we've, we've plugged 5 billion people into a two way network and basically set them loose to interact with each other. Um, you know, for sure there are these like dysfunctional kind of patterns that emerge, but at the same time, it's like, okay, now everybody is plugged in. Everybody can, you know, at some point choose what they want to participate in. Um, you know, it, it is a golden age for many kind of, you know, interests, um, you know, for anybody who's into anything, for any genre of music, any kind of chess, you know, any kind of game like chess, any, you know, any, any form of, you know, just like literally anything, you know, you go, it, it, the easy way to think about this is just all the subreddits, right? There's like, you know, there's like 10,000 subreddits and yeah, like, you know, whatever, there's some hundred, number of hundreds of them that are just, you know, political hellholes, right? But there's like another 9,500 that are enthusiastic and thriving, you know, communities of people with all kinds of interests, um, you know, people who have the same health problems, you know, people who have the same ambitions in life, um, people who are creating the same kind of art. Um, and so th there is this other side to it, which is like a far higher level of cultural dynamism and creativity, and then the ability to kind of match with people who love and care about what you care about, no matter where they live in the world. Um, and so like the, the most optimistic view would be 
people are just going to get bored of using the internet to just do politics and try to destroy each other. Um, and they're going to instead over time, go seek out, you know, kind of more productive and interesting and fun, you know, kind of things to do. And the internet is kind of there for them when they, you know, when they choose to do that. Do you think we're at risk though, of like things getting homogenized even online or, or do you, do you really, do you have faith in these individual communities, um, you know, maintaining maybe on a small scale and then, like you said, like really being there for people when the, the mood changes. Cause I think like that's a fear that a lot of folks have, like uh, you know, like old forum culture has kind of been washed away. Yeah. Although, like I said, it, it, some of it's just shifted, right. And some, like literally some, you know, a lot, a lot of old forums are now right subreddits and they're, they're actually quite active. So, so, you know, some of that's a technological change. Um, so um, I think the thing to keep in mind, if you want to kind of have the positive take on this, the, the thing to keep in mind, I think is how homogenous everything was before um like okay so there's this uh was it the best x-men movie is i think it's uh the days of future past where they the x-men travel back to like 1975 or whatever um and uh they're trying to figure out some crisis happened in the world and they, they need to find out what's happening and so it turns out that beast who's a super genius has rigged up this basically advanced technological system to monitor all broadcast broadcast transmissions in the country and analyze all the data and and, and literally and he's very proud to show it off to the time travelers in the future and he's like you know my my you know information processing machine you know, takes in all three broadcast networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS, right? Um, which is which is literally how it felt in the 70s, which is like, it was a big deal. If you were like in a town or neighborhood where not only could you get the big three broadcast networks, but you could also get PBS, uh, or maybe you had like radio, you were within a range of like an NPR radio station, like that was a big deal, right? That was like a great deal of increased basically media diversity. I mean, that's how homogenous everything was. Um, and it's the same thing. Movies, you know, there were like five movie studios that made all the movies. There were three magazines. There were basically only three magazines that people read time this week in U.S. news. Um, you know, newspapers. Cons- there used to be a lot of newspapers, but then by the 50s, newspapers that consolidated down where there was basically one newspaper per city. Right. And then, you know, literally like no Internet. And so if you wanted to learn about something that wasn't in Time magazine or wasn't in the daily newspaper that day and they, there wasn't a TV special that night, um, you know, you would walk to the library and you would go to the card catalog and you would hope there was a book in there. Like th- that was it. Right. And so and, and you know, and, and then this leads you to like in popular entertainment. It's like you have these like mega superstar musicians, you know, and Madonna and Led Zeppelin and Michael Jackson, all these people. And it's like, well. You know, were they really the best or were they just like the only ones, you know, they were one of 20 in the genre that could actually get a record contract and you played on radio. Right. And so it was it was things used to be really homogenous. Right. And so, you know, I like I, I do think there's an argument the Internet drives to homogeneity. And, you know, the sort of strongest version of that argument is kind of Western culture kind of colonizes the whole world, um, you know, and, and, you know, some, you know, maybe, you know, um, you know, the, basically the two big political movements kind of eat all politics. And there's something to that, but the, the, but there is this micro fragmentation um, that was just literally not possible before. And so I want to hold out at least a little bit, a little bit of optimism um, that there's now room in the world for like all of these long tail things that just were not possible before. Yeah, I mean, uh, even if you're like, you know, I don't know, like weird alt right art doesn't attain the level of Madonna, it'll still per se have an audience even if it's on low cow. Yeah. And, and look, one of the, uh, on the economic, you know, on the economic side, like, look, like, and you, you know, um, like, you know, uh, Substack and Patreon and, and like, 
you know, you all of a sudden, like this is actually one of the most dramatic developments I think I've ever seen, which is all of a sudden you have literally individual writers and creators in different media now where, you know, they, you know, they used to, you know, a lot of writers on Substack, you know, it's not a huge number yet, but like, you know, they used to make X, you know, writing for a magazine or something, they got forced off it, you know, they're on Substack, they're making 5X or 10X. Right. And, 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 you know, they're, they're, they're much more liberated in what they can do. They're much more independent of, of the group think um, and off and away they go. And so, and, and, it, 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 it makes sense in a way, right. Which is, it's just like, okay, if you have 5 billion people online um, you know, it's the, it's the old theory of the thousand true fans. If you can find a thousand true fans that pay 10 bucks a month, like you have a middle-class income in the West and you can just create your art. Right. And a thousand people is not that, like, if you, for you know, for any artist, you know, for, for for any artist or creator who can't find a thousand people who are willing to pay ten bucks a month, like, you know, <laughs> right? Are they are they really doing something interesting? Or you know, conversely, like you know, a lot of people are going to be able to do that. Um, and so you know, maybe 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 there's a much better environment on the other side here in which basically like the money flows that have gone to culture historically are going to get like really fragmented as compared to the past. And you're just going to have a much greater diversity uh, of art and culture um, that, that literally has money attached to it, which I think could, could be a great thing. Right. Totally. I mean, it sounds a little bit like embarrassing to say this sincerely, uh, but it is true that Patreon has allowed, you know, like, you know, podcasters, web show people to do things that are sort of very renegade and actually interesting in a way that can't really be deplatformed unless, you know, they're, 10,000 subscribers or whatever all turn against them, which is yeah. just not going to happen. Yep, exactly. And look, I, you know, the, the pressure on these platforms, you know, there, there is deplatforming pressure on these platforms, but, but, you know, look, the, you know, the crypto web three crowd, I'm, you know, I'm quite positive they're, you know, they're going to come up with, you know, decentralized versions to do this. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of work in that area developing right now. And so there's going to be, you know, there's going to be crypto blockchain approaches to this that are much harder to, to censor and block. So you know, like, I, I think there's some reason for optimism on, on that side. So sadly, we have to, I guess we have to start saying goodbye. This has been a really great conversation. I, I always love to talk about the internet and it's been, it's been great to have you as a, a guest on our show. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you guys for having me.